Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Michael Goldberg is the co-founder and portfolio manager of the Collins Street Value Fund, a funds management company based in Melbourne. Michael's history as an investor and advisor culminated with the launch of the fund in 2015. His style of investing can be characterized as high conviction and contrarian, meaning he and his partner Vass back themselves into ideas that others would find uncomfortable. Michael and his team pride themselves on their boots-on-the-ground due diligence, which, as we'll explore in this podcast, can result in a few interesting stories. Michael's entrepreneurial tendencies and business savviness began long before he became a professional investor. For example, Michael started his own disruptive cleaning business in Israel after seeing an opportunity whilst he was studying. This episode is rich with lessons for life, investing, the research process, money and business. I'll listen back to this one a few times. Don't forget to leave us an iTunes review if you enjoy our interview. It helps me attract more great guests just like Michael. Michael, thanks for joining me on the show, mate. Owen, thanks for having me. This is the first conversation you and I have had. We've just been talking for 42 minutes off air. Uh, there's so much to cover. Uh, I'm just delighted you could take the time out. My, seriously, my pleasure. Um, you've done a few podcasts in the past. You've spoken with Chris Judd and you've also done some videos with Livewire, but I don't think anyone's covered the, the ground that we've covered. So our audience, myself and you know, pretty much anyone I think that hasn't come across you will be able to pick this up and, and learn new things, not only about investing, but about you and, and your journey and how that shaped your philosophy. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the first question, but basically I want you to go back, cast your mind back to when you were a kid, growing up around money or business or finance and kind of that early um, origin story for you and what triggered the interest in finance and money. Good question. <laughs> like, I, mean, I, I think it probably starts two generations ago. Um, my grandparents came from Europe um, via the Middle East to Australia with almost nothing but the clothes on the back mm-hmm. um, and an exceptional work ethic. And I think that work ethic translated um, and was passed on to my father and their, and their broader family. But along with that work ethic um, came a tremendous amount of support and encouragement for, for my father and my uncles and aunts to back themselves, to, to, to take risks and to try and achieve the most they can. And, you know, through the 70s and 80s, my father, together with his sister, built up a about a 14-store retail empire, hmm. um, tragically called Trendy Girl, very, very 1980s, <laughs> tragic, tragic name, um, whereas their brother ended up opening up a, a doctor's surgery. But again, he built it up and, you know, they, they, they all became quite entrepreneurial. So we were always exposed as kids to that sort of thing. You know, we used to help out, you know, in the stores. You know, yep. we had a stall at the Queen Vic Market. We used to, again, help <laughs> yep. out. And if, if, if your listeners aren't watching the, uh, watching the video as well, just... There's some air quotes in there. There's <laughs> some air quotes in the helping out, in the, in, in the working there. Um, but, you know, some of my earliest memories were, you know, working at the Queen Vic Market for $10 a day, um, <laughs> 
did that inspire you to like did you did you I, mean, I imagine you lamented it at the time but now you look back on it it was kind of formative well I didn't I didn't lament it it was time with dad I mean okay. it was it was fantastic yep. time yeah it, it wasn't like he was actually putting us to work you know to help set up oh right and okay. then we'd spend half the day sitting in the box on a pile of bags relaxing or you know yep. serving customers selling jumpers or t-shirts or whatever the case right. be. okay so from a very early age um we got an understanding of what it was to work what it was to do with customer service what it was you know what was money what, what did it get you other than just buying stuff you know yep using money as capital to build a business. Of course, sadly for us, I don't want to make it sound too tragic, but sadly for us, uh, late 80s, early 90s, saw basically an end to the Trendy Girl brand for my father. Mm-hmm. Um, and we learned some important lessons. You know, we learned the true cost of debt. Um, you know, we'd, we'd previously learned the lesson of working hard and, and, and the value of working hard. Um, more than anything, I think, through the late 80s, early 90s, we, we learned the value of having good people around you and the support of family that despite what your challenges might be, if you've got the support, you'll generally get through. So mm-hmm. that, was, that, was, that was some early lessons. In terms of, so my first stock-specific story um, was a gift of $100 worth of CSR that I was given by my aunt for my bar mitzvah. And uh, I often joke that my business partner and co-founder, Vass, his first stock was also CSR. He also got it at around about 12 or 13 years old. But he bought it six years after I did. So I often say that's the beginning of that's proving to the world that he's a better investor than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was amazing. You know, it was fantastic. Every time mum went, went, went to the grocery shop from then on, on my instructions, the only sugar she was allowed to buy was CSR sugar. And it, it was, you know, I had a sense of ownership. It was, it was a cool feeling as a kid to, to, to be able to sit down and say, I own a part of this amazing Australian business. Uh, but my interest in investing more generally in stocks probably got started through an introduction to a broker at JB Weir from my auntie Jenny and her now late father who uh, introduced me to their broker. And it was quite interesting for me that, you know, I'd get on the phone, this was pre, pre-online broking, this mm-hmm. was when you paid for your yeah. stockbroking services. I think we must have had a half an hour conversation about National Australia Bank and then I walked away and, and, and bought some National Australia Bank at about $7 with some of my saved up money. And from then on I started following it in the paper and, you know, occasionally had conversations with the broker and I realized that while information on businesses might be available to everybody, not everybody was as fully informed. They didn't quite know what to do with it at that point, but there was sort of the seed was, was, was planted um, that it seemed to me at that point that if you can be better informed in the market, surely you can make money out of it. Mm. So that was my earliest experience in, in stockbroking um, and in investing in companies. Um, what led you to then go and study? What led me to go and study? Yeah. So, so my dream was to have a traditional sort of stockbroking relationship with clients, you know, build right. up a relationship with the client, you know, help them invest in the best stocks they could possibly invest in. This is at least what I imagined stockbroking was. <laughs> yeah. I've discovered with, the, with, with, with time that's not necessarily quite what it is, but that was what I imagined as a 14-year-old kid, 15-year-old kid. Um, so the next step was going to university to, to get some sort of degree, either in commerce or in banking and finance or something, something along those sorts of lines. Mm-hmm. And so that's the approach I took. Little did I know that, uh, that E-Trade and, and, and CompSec were going to put a dent in those sorts of plans. But I went along the pathway anyway, figuring that I'd work it out as I went. Um, and it was good. You know, we learned lots of important, important investing tools. You know, we, we, we learned obviously how to read balance sheets properly. We learned, you know, all the different sorts of theories around financial planning. Little did I know, of course, that when I finally did find a job um, doing essentially what I was looking to do, which was fantastic, 
um, that I would spend the next three years mostly unlearning mm. a lot of what I'd learned in university. <laughs> so that was quite an interesting experience. How do you mean? Can you recall any specific kind of theories or yeah. lessons? No. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I suppose at uni there's, there was probably two aspects to what we were learning. Number one was practical analytics. How do you value a company? How do you, how do you discount cash flows? How do you read a balance sheet? And that sort of stuff is obviously key and super important. But the other half of what you were, or at least in my day, what we were learning at university was how to diversify, how to de-risk, how to essentially take everything we've learned in the previous half of our education around how to value a company and discount it such that you can't possibly make a mistake because you're so massively diversified. And my view and value investing's view in general and certainly um, Leyland Private Asset Management's view was that, no, no. We're value investors. We're looking to find and identify quality businesses that are better than the rest and invest in those businesses. So you've got to have a bit of conviction. You've got to have a bit of a concentrated portfolio. Mm. So, you know, while I had the tools, obviously, to, to value stocks, um, a lot of that conceptual stuff around how to build a portfolio had to be unwound and, and, and relearned yeah. um, as a value investor. For sure it does. I find that all the time, especially with young people. I think the abstract kind of ideas around portfolio management and all those types of things. Just not only are they kind of deemed unnecessary by a lot of us later in life, of course, it's, you have to know the rules of the game before you can play it, of course. But at the same time, a lot of it is unlearned. And it's interesting that you put it that way. How, I, I, remember, I remember I had a university assignment mm. where I took the view that I'd rather own less companies that I know better or that I think are better valued. Mm. And I had marks taken off for not having sufficient diversification. <laughs> So you know, that was the start of me going against the, uh, the, the common consensus way of, of, of building a portfolio, I think. Yeah, I think there is some, I won't name names, but I think there are some notable academics who, when asked how they invest later in life, had nothing to do with the theories or the accolades that they received you know, for, their th- for those theories um, during their academic teachings and, and time. Those theories were actually thrown out when they actually just revealed what was in their portfolio. And so I think, you know, maybe there's something to that as well. Um, there is one point in your journey, which I think before we get to kind of your investment advice and, and dealing with that side of things, but the, um, the part where you've left uni and kind of what you did next, because I feel like there's a gap there, which we need to talk about. There is. There's a secret gap there. <laughs> secret. <of a> number- <laughs> Not so secret. <laughs> um, I actually went to seminary. I traveled to the Middle East, to Israel specifically, and the plan was originally to spend a year reconnecting with my heritage, um, learning about, you know, my, my traditions and whatnot. So yeah. I went for a year and a year became three years before I came back and started university. Um, and I actually eventually went back again for another couple of years where I met my wife before we got married and, and built our family. So, Fantastic. so it's, it's not quite your traditional, um, mm. pathway to funds management. Um, but it's certainly, it certainly helped me. It, it certainly helped me in many, many ways, not just in becoming a better person, I think, but also in, in the way that I invest and the way that I approach life in general, but specifically the patience that I have now and, and the ability to concentrate and get through a lot of, a lot of the noise and nonsense that, that had I not gone through that experience, I might have struggled to have gotten through from an investment perspective. Yeah. Was, was there anything there in particular that you think, you mentioned patience, but anything else, experience or anything else that you can draw on now that really benefits you? I mean, look, I think, as I said, there's always been an entrepreneurial spirit um, in my family, and I think I've always had that entrepreneurial spirit as well. I think even before I knew, knew that the word existed, 
mm. you know, th- thinking back to, to schooling in general, you know, I remember back in, in primary school, I was selling Michael Jordan t-shirts at the height of the Chicago Bills to, at yeah. the height of the Chicago Bulls to, to my classmates, you know, we <laughs> bought boxes of, of, of basketball cards at, at wholesale price and then sold the packets to, to my mates at a discount to the retail price. And that worked well for everybody. I mean, I even remember my first ever arbitrage opportunity. <laughs> I know this is a bit off topic, but I think it's a good That's story. Um, so I was at a mate's house on a Sunday and we rode our little bikes down to the $2 shop because the concept of the $2 shop was pretty new. And what else are you going to do when you're, you know, 14? Yeah. <laughs> it's not like you're going to yeah. go proper shopping. And uh, we discovered that they were selling boxes of cricket cards for $2. Yeah. So we're like, well, that's pretty cheap. I'm pretty sure that the card shop down the road sells sets for like 10 bucks a set. So we bought a couple of boxes. I think we had four bucks each, so we bought four boxes. We took them home. We unpacked them. We made sets, and then we delivered them to the um, to the to the card collecting shop, the, the the trading shop. And he bought our sets. So we took that money and went back and ended up buying whatever was left on the shelf, and did the same thing again and brought it back. And this time the guy says, "Guys, what's going on?" Yeah. So he came clean because we were kids, and what are you going to do? <laughs> he didn't give us the nine bucks. I think he paid for the first set the second time. I think he paid us six bucks a set or something like that. But, you know, clear arbitrage. Buy, buy three mm-hmm. sets from boxes for two bucks, sell them for six bucks a set uh, down the track. But, um, you know, I'm, I've always been looking at ways to do things better. You know, challenge the status quo. You know, is there a gap in, in, you know, in a consumer need? And while I was in Israel, you can imagine that, um, that, that being in seminary is not exactly – a, a life that generates much income. Mm. Um, it's quite the opposite. It's not especially cheap to spend time in full-time study, especially overseas. Um, but it's something I loved. So to help fund it, I would find little ways to, to, to make money. So, um, you know, I was introduced at one point to, to, to a lady who was selling international phone calling cards. Mm. And this might sound like a foreign concept to some of your millennial investors uh, and listeners, but back then... There was hardly cell phones or mobile phones. And if you wanted to dial international, you definitely needed to have one of these international phone cards. So, you know, the lady who sold me the cards thought that, you know, I'd focus on my, on my school and, you know, I'd go through X number of cards a week. I said, no, no, I'm going to make this work for me. And I ended up distributing to three or four other schools in the area as well. Hmm. Um, you know, I noticed that um, other than having to walk down to the shops, there was no convenient snack foods in, in, in the school. So I organized for some vending machines to be put in. You know, probably the biggest project that I had um, was a, you know, and these are all side gigs, obviously. Yep. Um, the biggest project I had was, I think, a cleaning company that I launched. <laughs> um, we had 60 staff at our, at our peak, and we serviced about 500 families. And the way it worked was basically that in, in Jerusalem, once a year, there is a massive spring cleaning around, around the Jewish festival of Passover. Mm-hmm. And as a student, uh, the first year I was there, I decided to sign up to be a cleaner. Again, not the traditional route to finance yeah. management, but, you know, this is my life. <laughs> um, and so I worked for, 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 a, for a cleaning company. They were basically, they had a monopoly on the area. And, I, you know, I picked up a number of ways, you know, a number of things they were doing that I didn't think was ideal. So, you know, I worked hard and, you know, my, my clients all liked me and gave me their numbers and said, come back for a weekend, would love to have you for a dinner or, you know, next year would love to have you come back and et cetera, et cetera. And I went back and six months went by and I thought, you know what? You know, I made some decent money and it, you know, helped pay the way, but this could be done better. So I said, you know what, I'm going to run my own cleaning company next season. And I ended up bringing on, on board my roommate who had otherwise threatened to work for, for the other company and, 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 uh, and poach all of the local cleaners. So <laughs> he, he came on board and in year one, I think we probably got to about 
25, 30% of what the, 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 the previous monopoly had had. We pinched yeah, about wow. 30% of the pie. Um, by year two, we were pretty much neck and neck. And by year four, I think we were probably the largest um, cleaning company of that sort in the region. Wow. So it was quite an experience. I think, I think some of the main lessons that I would have learned from that that, that, that I can apply to, to business in general, I think is working a little bit smarter or a little bit harder can have massive implications on the, on, on the end outcome. You know, I, I think people would rather be comfortable than successful. I know it's a terrible thing to say, but I think if you ask most people, are you prepared to pay the price of discomfort to earn success or happiness? Most of them would say, no, I'm, I'm happy mm. on the couch. I'm, I'm happy just doing what I know to do. And so if you do just a little bit more, if you go just a little bit out of your comfort zone, I think you can achieve more than people realize. I think we also realized that you can't build a, a, a business or, or an offering that you want. You've got to build a business or an offering that your clients want. Um, so make sure that you're catering to the clients. I think perception as well. Um, I remember in the first year, people would be wandering around the neighborhood in their, in their cleaning clothes. Mm. And there are certain sensitivities in, in certain neighborhoods of Jerusalem. And I don't think it was fully appreciated. So, you know, I suggested to the boys that would work for us that, you know, come dressed and then get changed and clean and then get changed again. Mm. You know, again, it's a little thing. You yep. know, maybe it didn't make a big difference. But again, you know, if, you're, if your reputation precedes you, then it's not going to hurt. And again, your reputation precedes you for better or for worse. Um, your reputation will precede you. I think those are probably some of the key lessons that I learned specifically from that business that in many ways do apply also to the funds management business. Absolutely. There's so many lessons. There's so many different threads that we could pull on, but I guess... I, I mean, I think the main thing is, you know, and again, I don't come from a traditional background in terms of taking the, the regular route into funds management. And I don't know, I don't know what most people's life experience is from where they were to, to get into, say, a fund manager. But to me, it seems that if you're buying businesses, because that's really what the ASX is, that's really what the stock market is. If you're buying businesses, then surely you've got to be able to understand what makes a business. You know, I was having a chat the other day. Um, someone asked me about Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and, and where does their success lie? Uh, I'm not a big fan of quoting Charlie Munger. And I'm, I'm, certainly, I'm certainly not in a position where I can assume, you know, what their strengths and weaknesses are. But I said to this fellow, I said, look, I don't think... Um, either Mr. Munger or Mr. Buffett would claim to be able to read balance sheets better than the next guy. You know, I'm sure you can find an actuary who can read a balance sheet better than Warren Buffett. I said, I think the secret to their success is that they understand business and they understand people. And when you're buying a stock, you're buying a business and it's people. And that's key. So, you know, I, I think the life experience that I've had in dealing with people and, and in running some businesses and my, 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 my business partner, Vass, has, has similarly had experience in running businesses as well and, and managing people. Um, I think that puts us at a big advantage um, to perhaps a lot of people who haven't had that experience and instead have more theoretically looked at companies, um, you know, through their balance sheets or through their reports or whatnot. So I think it's been a big advantage for us. I see that all the time. Not necessarily, it's not necessarily specific to funds management or fund managers, but just DIY investors, private investors in general. You often see um, a disconnect between, I guess, what they're analysing and what it takes to get to that level. So specifically what I mean is a lot of particularly newer investors, they think, oh, you know, look at the balance sheet, look at the income statement, and they might have learned this theoretically but how do those numbers get there? And, you know, I think, like you said, if you consider your strength to be the ability to analyze a balance sheet better than someone else, 
The challenge is it's not only actuaries you've got these days. You've got these supercomputers, <laughs> you've got quantitative funds, and you really need to know where your strengths lie. But stepping back from that again, um, I think the quote, if I bring one up, and I don't think I've quoted Buffett on this one yet on this podcast, but the quote that resonates the most with me is I'm a better uh, business person because I'm an investor, better investor because I'm a business person. And I think case in point with you, you seem to have been a serial entrepreneur and I think now you can apply that to analyzing other businesses. It's mm. quite exciting. No, I think that resonates. I think that's, that's a wonderful quote. Mm. How about the next journey, the next step in your journey, which was Leyland? Um, what did you do there? Um, and then maybe you can take us up to the formation of the the Collins Street Value Fund, uh, okay. how you funded it, all those types of things. Okay. Yeah. More interesting stories, straight up. Um, Leyland, Leyland was, was a godsend, actually. Um, like I said, you know, I was concerned with the, with the invent of E-Trade and, and, and Comsec that I would end up a disgruntled office worker in the back of some big bank, you hmm. know, crunching numbers and being dissatisfied with my life. Um, but through a process of looking for a job, I, I discovered this boutique wealth manager out of, out of Turak, um, that was essentially doing pretty much what I was looking to do. So I went in for an interview. It was, like I said, a small outfit. We were in a, in a little office on a balcony overlooking the Safeway car park <laughs> at the Turak Village. So <laughs> it, was, it was very homely. Uh, but it was great because, you know, I met this fellow, Charles Leyland, who had a wealth of experience that I could learn from, um, who could take me under his wing. Again, it was, it was Charles, myself, and one other person. So we got a lot of, a lot of positive feedback and a lot of positive guidance from Charles um, but what we did there was we ran what was called IMAs, Individually Managed Accounts. Mm. And over time, you know, I built my business and over time, um, Leyland moved from Turak to, to the city and it got to the stage where I had some 30-odd clients and the tricky part about an IMA is that every single client has a unique and distinct portfolio with a slightly different mandate. So it got to the point where, and it's, it's on me, but it got to the point where I felt like it was becoming increasingly difficult to give the amount of time and attention that I wanted to each portfolio and also, you know, do some due diligence, you know, some on the ground primary research on companies that we thought were interesting. So um, Vass, as I mentioned, my, the, my co-founder used to sit across the desk from me and, you know, we got to talking probably in 2014. No plans, just, you know, talking about what our life might look like going forwards. And we came up with a suggestion that, you know, perhaps, perhaps Leyland might be interested in, in launching a fund so that we can streamline things, we can scale it up, and you know, we can spend more time focusing on, on identifying ideas and managing a single portfolio instead of being a little bit distracted. Um, he wasn't interested, Charles wasn't interested, and that's fair enough. He'd built his reputation mm. and his, his business on IMAs, and they are a wonderful product um, for a lot of people. Uh, in fact, a number of, of my previous clients, when, when they discovered that I'd launched the fund, they, they called me up and said, Michael, you know, we're thinking about coming to follow you. Do you think, you know, do you think it's appropriate for us? And I said to them point blank, no, it's not. No, it's not. I mean, our mandate is, is such and, and your interests lay elsewhere. Um, I think there's a tremendous amount of value of, in you having your own tailored portfolio, you know, to achieve your specific goals. So uh, it wasn't until 2015 that Vass and I left Leyland and underwent the process of launching the fund. The... The fund was funded mostly by savings. Again, um, we'd done pretty well for our clients and so we'd been pretty, pretty well paid over the previous couple of years. Um, but what got us over the edge in terms of funding was um, a relationship with 
BT Financial. Right. So I'll, I'll explain. Okay. <laughs> I'll explain. Um, we often found what we, what we would call special situations, which was situations where a company had been battered for one reason or another, and there was an upcoming catalyst. We couldn't always know exactly when, but there was a, a soon-to-be upcoming catalyst that would see a re-rating of the stock. You know, maybe it's a takeover, arbitrage, maybe it's a, you know, a in-species, you know, splitting out of some of their assets, whatever the case may be. There were, there were a number of these things that were attractive to my clients at the time, and so I spent some time focusing on that sort of area of the market, and we found a number of them. And one that we found was a company called Chorus. Um, mm. I don't know if you know Chorus, but essentially, if you imagine the wholesale side of Telstra yep. in New Zealand, <laughs> um, and the long, sorry, the short version of the long story mm. is the regulator there regulates how much they can charge for access to their pits and their infrastructure, and the regulator has two ways of valuing that. Number one, on the basis of what people in the rest of the world are doing, and there aren't many systems quite, this, quite the same as New Zealand, so that's a bit of a challenge. Um, and number two is go in there, work out what it costs to maintain at a margin, and on that basis, tell them what they can charge. So for their regulator there, it was much easier just to say, okay, we went out in the world, we found three other countries in the world that had something similar. On that basis, here's a price. And the company said, hang on a second, we're broke if that's a price you, you want us to charge because you're comparing you know, New Zealand to European countries. It, it's not like for like, and our costs aren't the same. But the market didn't hear the complaints and the market didn't appreciate that Chorus could go back and say to the regulator, no, no, we don't like that approach. Take the second approach and that's the one that you have to, you know, that's the one we'll go with. And that was the legislation. The market didn't realize that and I think it fell from like $3 to $1.10, $1.20, maybe something. Right. Somewhere in that vicinity. And we bought up as much stock as, as we thought was appropriate for our, for our clients and our clients were happy with it. Even as it drifted a little bit lower, they understood that we're in this until it gets sorted out. We thought it would take six, six months, you know, not taking four years, but that's, that's a story <laughs> for another time. Um, but we got set and, and Vass and I are sitting there and, you know, we'd talk to the communications minister in New Zealand, you know, we had ongoing dialogue with them. We'd spoken to management of the company, you know, we'd spoken to some of the um, political parties that were against increasing prices for access to internet. It's not surprising why that would be a, a yeah. political issue. And we said, you know what, this is ridiculous. We said, we don't know if this, we don't know if this is going to be resolved in six months or if it's going to take 12 months. But this is a situation that is not sustainable. It's a situation that will be resolved. And this company is worth $3.50 to $4. And again, at the time, they were trading about $1.20. So we reached out to a few um, relationships that we had. We were looking to buy an option against Chorus. So we ended up settling on, on BT Financial. And I guess their practice is that they, they work out what the risks are and they internally they internally back the options, um, you know, based on risk assessment. Mm -hmm. And they said to us, okay, fine, it's currently trading. I think at that point it was $1.40. We got options at $1.60. Break-even for us was about $1.80. Um, they said, you know, what's your, you know, what's the terms? How long would you like to be invested for? You know, we've got like one month, we've got two months, we've got three months, and our longest is six months. We said, no, no. We said, we want 18 months. Yeah. So said, okay, fine. We've got to create this ourselves for you. We can't find that market. We'll create it ourselves for you. So they did that, and the risk was against their own balance sheet. And uh, about 12 months later, um, as the options were expiring, the share price was about $2.60. We were very right, and we made some good money out of it. Mm -hmm. um, sadly, almost immediately after we exited our options because they were expiring, it ran up to 350, but <laughs> such is life, right? Yeah. Um, 
And we did a couple of other similar um, option plays with, with BT um, until they cut us off. <laughs> um, they weren't prepared to, to use Wonder their own why. balance sheet to, to, to back our ideas anymore. Um, and if they couldn't find somebody to take the other side, they weren't prepared to give us the options, which is fair enough. But by that point, we'd, we'd, we'd accumulated some, some very reasonable savings, um, which funded the creation of Con Street Valley Fund and also put us in a position where we were comfortable that if we didn't get fees for 12 or 18 months, that we could comfortably sustain the operations of the business. Yeah. It's, it's one heck of a story. Yeah, sorry. It's, it's, no, it's a it's bit long-winded, but... Um. No, it's great. I don't, well, it's, I'll tell you what, it's unique. I've never heard of that. So, okay, two things. Um, just tell us a bit about the strategy that you, why you thought how like your experience and your philosophy added value in terms of like the strategy that you've chosen to pursue since then, I guess. And then um, maybe we're getting a bit of ahead of ourselves, but it's kind of this natural segue to it is why the fund has the fee structure that it has. Okay. Um, so like I said, both Vass and I had done pretty well for our investors over time. And we received a lot of interesting feedback, especially through the GFC. So, you know, as an example, you know, I, I met with a client shortly, shortly after the depths of the GFC. Right. Know? And, you know, I'd brought his portfolio with me and, you know, we were down about 5% against a market that was down 20 or 25%. And my expectations at the time, as I, as I assume would be, would be for most professional investors, was that he would be thrilled with a 15% outperformance against the index. I expected a ticket tape parade. I expect packs <laughs> on the backs. I expect referrals to all of his friends. But instead, instead, the client was dissatisfied that he was down 5%. <laughs> now, I can hear that. I, no, I absolutely, I absolutely hear that, that, mm. that issue. Like the client was dissatisfied paying a, a not a performance fee, a, a, a fixed management fee for a negative 5% return. And I said, well, what do you want from our lives? You know, we beat the market by 15%. He said, Michael, I appreciate that you're not down 20%, but I can't eat relative returns. <laughs> um, okay. And so we started tinkering at that point with the idea of lower or no fixed management and performance fees only. And we discovered that it resonated with a lot of people, especially business owners and a lot of the high net wealth individuals that we've met. It doesn't quite work or go down quite as well with, with the you know financial planning um, networks because it's something a little bit different and a little bit new. Um, but certainly it resonated with the entrepreneurs and, and, and the high net worth individuals that we met with. Can I just ask a question? Why do you think the financial planners bulk at that a bit? Like, what do you, what do you think it is that they can't? Get the head around. It's a business do you, do risk. You, do you want my political answer or my honest answer? <laughs> I mean, I would like the honest one, but either. I'd take. Look, I think. I think it. I think a zero fixed management fee, performance fee only approach, turns a lot of what the value add is from financial planners on its head. Um, you know, once you identify a good fund manager. What's the, what's the additional value that you can provide to your client as, a, as, a, as an advisor that the client can't provide for themselves? I think the answer is pushing and getting a better price. Um, mm. And so if you can push a fund manager to give you a discount on fees, which you can then rebate to your clients, that's of tremendous value. And, and, and it's where they can see and where they can identify their adding value. I think it becomes difficult when there's a zero fixed management fee and only a performance fee. 
Um, and certainly from our perspective, you know, we said, look, we're taking risk. You know, if we make no money for you, we're not getting paid. And so we weren't prepared to, to discount the, the, um, the performance fee. And I, I think most people, that resonated and most people understood that. But at least from the professional services, from the, from the, from the, from the financial advisors that we met with, they just said, look, this is a little bit out of the box for us and didn't quite suit what they were after. And that's fine. Um, I think more and more as, as more other fund managers come on board with this, with a similar sort of, um, offering, I think it's probably getting better understood and perhaps that there's more take up from the, from these financial advisors than there were, than there were five years ago. Um, but certainly when we started, people said we were mad. Mm. You must have had, so I, I think there's a few things. Obviously, you, you mentioned that you did quite well before starting this, so you could afford it. But I think there's the other part of this, which is that you would have to have conviction that you will do well um, and that you will do well for your clients, right? Like you would have to be pretty confident in that. Oh, of course you do. Yeah. But if you're not confident that you're able to add value to your clients, then what the heck are you doing starting up a managed fund? Well, <laughs> what are you doing looking after other people's <laughs> money if you, if you don't know what you're doing? True, yeah. true. Look, again, again, I think, I think, I think our view, um, our, you know, our value investment approach, our, our, our view that a concentrated portfolio is, is the best way to deliver the best results, it all sort of fits in nicely with the performance fee and, and the no fixed management fee approach to things. Um, you know, if, if, if we thought we couldn't do it, then we'd be out of, and if we couldn't do it, we'd be out of business pretty quickly. And, you know, to be perfectly blunt, rightfully so. Rightfully mm. so. Um, but our take was that if we did perform well, then we'd also get paid well and it would be a win-win for both the clients and for ourselves. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. So um, value investing, oh, I guess 21st century, uh, you've already mentioned, I guess, from the high-level perspective why investing works. But maybe you can step us through kind of your investment process and why Oh, you know, I mean, we'll get to some specific examples perhaps soon, but I guess why you think it still works and how you, what will you do day to day effectively? Okay. Look, I think value, I think investing in general clearly works given the time, given the right investment decisions. Um, but perhaps one of the, one of the, the books that I, one of the first investment books that I read was um, Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it really put into perspective, if nothing else, that, and I'm sorry to boil down a 500 page, <laughs> page book into, into one line, but basically it boils down to make your money work for you. Yep. Make your money work for you. And you see that it's worked for a lot of people for a long, long time. And I believe that it still does work, but it's not easy. It's not easy. And as I said before, most people would rather be comfortable yeah, mm. than happy or successful. And the effort that you need to put in to identify these good businesses, you know, sometimes it's uncomfortable. I mean, I'm happy to tell you some stories about some of the things that we do that are quite uncomfortable to, to get the results that we wanted to get. But, you know, sitting behind your computer and looking at the readily available public information, that's comfortable. You know, that, that, that's easy. If you're doing that, then you've, got, you've not got any more information than the next guy. What you really need to find in any kind of investment, no matter what your approach is, whether it's value investing, whether it's growth investing, whatever the case may be, you need to find some sort of advantage. And our take has always been, let's find an information advantage. If you can find an information advantage, you can identify good businesses. If you can identify what their appropriate prices are and they're trading at a discount to that, you can certainly make money. Now, I will grant you that between current price 
or mispricing and intrinsic value, there is some 5 million individual investors that are buying and selling stocks basically on the basis of how they feel when they woke up that morning. Mm. And so the journey from mispriced to proper valuation and, 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 and generating a, a profit can sometimes be longer than you anticipate. But certainly, I believe that if you can buy a company or if you can buy an investment of any sort at a discount to its, 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 its assets or a discount to its cash flows of the next few years, absolutely you can make money. And I think, I think people intrinsically understand that. The question is, how do you identify those specific businesses and how can you have the conviction to back those ideas? And that's, I think, where the challenge comes in. And that's where we try and, and do the deep dive due diligence mm. that provides us with that, that special insight. Um, so we'll get to, well, I'll ask you about those examples that you, you said you have. Um, but for those that don't know, it's the portfolio that you run is around eight to tw- 20 companies, but I'm led to believe it's probably at the lesser end of that. Fewer end? So the answer is yes, <laughs> but not exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, our, our view is that you can have a properly diversified, and again, I'm using air quotations here for diversified because I'm not a fan of it for its own sake, but I think you can have a proper portfolio of eight to 15 positions. I think that's probably about right. Um, at the moment, though, we've taken a view on a couple of thematics, one being gold, one being uranium mm. um, stocks. So we have more than 15 stocks, individual stocks at the moment in the portfolio. But if you lump together the gold stocks into one position, and we've created as a basket, that's the way we think about it, and you, and you lump the uranium stocks into one basket of uranium stocks, then we've got, I think, probably eight or nine positions at the moment. Right. Okay. Um, and so how about some of those examples? I find the investment process, and there's a chart um, which I can link to on the site. There's a few of them, actually, which on your site, which um, I guess sum up and do the best job of just articulating the process really concisely. But um, one of the things that I think really works is an example. Not It doesn't necessarily have to be a company, but it could be. But kind of the, the things that made you uncomfortable to get to an outcome, to include it in the portfolio, to not include it in the portfolio, I think that really helps. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, look, the obvious things are asking tough questions of management when you get in front of them. Mm. You know, nobody likes to ask a tough question because it makes the other person feel uncomfortable and it makes you feel uncomfortable. You know, one of the things that we tend to do, you know, I'll just tell you a story. I'll give you sure, an example. Yeah, yeah. So right when we were launching the fund, one of the stocks that we thought was going to be one of the first investments that we were going to make for the fund um, was Metcash. Mm-hmm. So at the time, the share price had fallen from $3 to about $1.20. Um, the market hated it. The market said, this business is finished. There's no way you can run supermarkets through a franchise um, uh, system. It's, it's done and dusted. While at the same time, management was saying, no, no, we've, we've begun to implement these processes, these plans, which, which all made sense, and just bear with us, it's working. You'll see in six months. So what were the plans? The plans were, number one, price matching. There was a, there, there was a prevailing view in the market, probably still is, to be honest, mm. that IGA is more expensive than Coles and Safe and Woolworths. Um, let's price match to deal with that. Number two, a lot of the stores were disheveled and not especially attractive. Mm-hmm. Metcash agreed to give, not loan, but pay for half of any refurb that any franchisee wanted to wanted to make. Right. And number three, retraining. So again, I don't know how I don't know how vast your IGA shopping experience <laughs> is, but there are some exceptional IGAs. I'm talking they are mm. better than the Coles and Woolworths um, supermarkets. They're just exceptional. And then you've got the ones that are 
Mm. Let's just call it less exceptional. So they implemented a training process to take best practices and spread it across the network. So management weren't saying this will work. Management was saying this is working. We've started a pilot program. We've rolled it out to a lot of our franchisees. And it is working. You'll start to see the results in six to nine months. And the market said, nah, forget about it. So, you know, Fast and I are there. You know, we're thinking about it. We're talking about it. We had a chat with management. We understood what he was saying. It resonated. It made sense. We said, how do we know? How do we know if the market is right and this franchisee model is broken and it's not going to work? Or how do we know that management is right? So, Owen, sorry to put you on the spot. What would you do as somebody with a bit of business experience? I would go to the supermarkets. I would ask around. Correct. So we took off two days, we jumped in the car, and we plotted out 15 IGA stores around Victoria that had taken up the early pilot program. Mm-hmm. So we'd turn up unannounced, we'd ask the cashier or, or, or somebody who was stocking shelves in, in, in the aisles to please direct us to whoever's in charge, the manager or the owner, and we went and just had a conversation, literally out of the blue. So we spoke to a lot of managers, we even spoke to a few owners of multiple stores, and the feedback that we got was overwhelmingly positive. You know, we had one guy who we was sitting and he called us up to his office and he sat us down in the chair across from him and he was on, I guess, a morning morning meeting with some of the other supermarkets who are part of a part of his ownership you know, mm-hmm. um, group. And he was half talking to them and half talking to us, which is a bit strange, but it was what it was. And we were asking about what sort of what sort of returns have you seen from your refurb? And he turned his screen around to us and showed us his store specific how how sales had improved, especially in, in fresh fruit, it was at the time, fresh, fresh produce, since they did the refurb. And we said, you know, how's the feedback been about, um, about price matching? And he went on about how exceptional it was. And the story was, throughout 14 of the 15 stores, almost to a T, the same. This has been revolutionary. This has been amazing. Not only have we seen exceptional returns here, but when we get together with the rest of the IGA markets at our our biannual conference, I think it was in Queensland that year, the feedback was so positive that despite the fact that management of Metcash were planning to roll it out over 12 or 18 months, everyone who we spoke to expected it was going to be done in six months because the results were so exceptional. So we went back and we said, well, you know, it's not a question of does this work or doesn't work. We can see patently from the primary research we've done, from speaking to people, that it is working. Mm. So we said, you know what? We're happy to start buying some of this stock now. So, you know, we bought a little bit, you know, the price went down, we bought a bit more, price went down some more, we we bought some more. And the challenge I think that a lot of investors have, especially with the share price going backwards, is that if you've got nothing to judge a business on except for its share price, well, if it drops from $1.80 to $1.20, it's suggestive that you're wrong. But if you know what's going on, then if you start at $1.80 and you can buy it at $1.60, bonus we're getting the same business for a cheaper price if it goes to a dollar 40 even better at a dollar 20 oh my goodness what a special treat for us mm. so that's the approach that we take and that's the approach we took and of course it worked out very very well and metcash went on to flourish um the one store that didn't give us mm. quite as positive feedback um was an interesting situation we walked in it was a gorgeous iga actually it was beautiful big iga i think it was somewhere in the inner eastern suburbs or southeastern suburbs and um we went in and we did the same spiel that we'd done every other time. We went to the checkout lady and we said, can you point us to a manager? And normally they'd point you to an office somewhere and we could see, you know, it was, it was a multi-layer 
multi-layered building, you could see from the ground floor, there were other floors where management clearly was. But instead of pointing us to an elevator or something, she pointed us to a fellow who was checking prices in the aisles. So we went to this guy and I gave him my card and I said, you know, this is Michael, this is fast. You know, do you have a couple minutes to have a chat about, you know, the price matching policy and, and you know, how, how it's impacted sales, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And again, he might have qualified as manager, but I suspect it was pretty low level manager. Okay. He immediately got his back up. Um, he was very, very confrontational. And he right. essentially escorted us out of the store, accusing us of being competition, trying to spy on the IGA that he was, that he was the manager of. <laughs> we got to the car, we got to the car, and I'm sitting down, and Vass is grinning from ear to ear, and I'm, I'm shaking. Like, I've never been chucked out of a supermarket before, you know? Yeah. The biggest confrontation I had in my family is who gets the last schnitzel at dinner. You know, yeah. that's yeah. the biggest confrontation. I turned to Vass, I said, Vass, why are you grinning? He said, mate, we've been doing this for two days. Every time we walk into a shop, they tell us almost the exact same thing. This is the first thing that's happened that makes it a story worth telling. <laughs> I said, fine, way to see the silver lining. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, so again, you know, it's not comfortable necessarily to rock up unannounced and, and you know, ask to speak to the manager. You know, I feel like a Karen all of a sudden. I'm not, I'm not asking to speak to the manager for, for a negative reason. You know, I'm, I'm going out of my way and trying to find information that's available to people who are prepared to make the effort, but... Most people don't. And we asked, we said, you know, has, has any other brokers, have any other fund managers come and talk to you guys about your experience since implementing the, uh, you know, these new, these new projects? And not a one said yes. Mm. We don't understand why not. We can't understand how something that seems so simple to us and so obvious to us isn't something that's being done by everybody else. Um, but I suppose therein lies the opportunity. If everybody was doing it, if it was easy, if it was comfortable, then there would be no mispricing. So I guess we're fortunate and thankful that not other people aren't doing it or weren't doing it. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a sort of example where, where we try and find that, that information advantage. And again, you know, we, we've owned companies like, like ANZ before, you know, walking into the, to, to the Berkshire branch and asking the cashier what their till looks like and how business has been going is probably unlikely to give me the sort of, the, the, the sort of feedback that I want. I think uh, getting kicked out of an IGA would be a positive experience relative to what might happen <laughs> if I'd asked some of those questions. Um, <laughs> You know, each, each business, obviously, there are different angles that you can take or, or different avenues that you can approach um, to, to get that advantage. Um, I, I got, and I think this is just great, I got fed a question from Rob who oh. asked me uh, to ask you, and I think this is relevant now, is what's the strangest thing you've ever done to get these insights? Or like the most unique <laughs> and memorable experience that you've had? Okay. <laughs> To, to get information on a company or, yeah. or suggested to a company oh, to get to get value. I, I guess the strangest thing that we've ever suggested to a company mm. um, to help realize shareholder value was um, a small company called Litigation Capital Management, who essentially financed litigation, mm -hmm. who were not being a, a pre, you know they were not being appreciated in the Aussie markets. Um, the Aussie markets don't get the business, and that's fair enough. I actually tend to think, and I don't mean to disparage anybody, and it's certainly not my intent, but I tend to think that if you go outside of the ASX top 50, you know, if you go outside of banks, if you go outside of BHP, if you go outside of Woolworths and Telstra, you know, the Australian stock market isn't as sophisticated, I think, as we'd like to think that we are. So a company that is providing a service that is out of left field relative to what people are used to, 
I understand why it gets discounted in the markets. So we were getting frustrated because we'd owned it already for 12 months and it was a great business and it was just not being properly valued. Um, and we had some conversations with management and one of the things that cropped up was, you know, if it's not working in Australia, you're doing everything you could, that, that could be asked of you. How about going to London? How about going to the UK markets where they have some more of this sort of stuff? Mm. Um, and the company did end up doing that and the share price reflected that move and that better understanding of that industry in the UK relative to Australia. Um, that was probably the strangest thing we've recommended to a company. <laughs> in terms of the strangest way that we've ever done research, I'm a bit hesitant to say. <laughs> oh, it's got to be juicy then. <laughs> uh, it's just a it's, it's, uh, um, So during COVID-19, mm. sorry, prior to COVID-19, we've been concerned about, about the economy in general. Um, and so, you know, we've steered clear of a lot of consumer discretionary um, sorts of investments. Yeah. If you have a look at our portfolio, I think it resonates when you have a look. Um, but one of the most recent pre-COVID ideas that came through was, was from Vass. He liked a company called National Tire and Wheels. And he made the case that it is counter-cyclical because when you're not selling new cars, and since 2017 you've seen a decline in new car sales, massive decline in new car sales, mm. Um, then, you know, you're fixing parts, you're replacing tires, you're replacing wheels, you're you know, getting a paint job. And he's ca he made a case that um, national tires would be counter-cyclical and so a good, a good stock to hold. Mm. So he bought some. And, you know, it was pretty steady through, through, through the corona crash and it went down a little bit and I think it went from 40 cents down to, down to low 20s. And I still believe that's because, you know, it made sense. I wasn't 100% on board, but... It was, it was sound enough, but um, during homeschooling, so my daughters, I've got twin daughters who are 14, they were doing an economics project, and because dad's in the industry, every time they had a question, you know, on, on economics or finance or whatever the case may be, they came in and asked me, and, and they said, oh, we've got a project now on, um, on assessing the impact of COVID-19 on local businesses. Um, what should we do? <laughs> and I had... I had you know, a light bulb moment. I said, you know what? Let's do research together. I said, let's do some investigation into wheel and tire companies. Um, it'll suit your project and it'll suit my ongoing due diligence into a company that we already own. So we took turns with my daughter and I. She had a, her standard questions that the school had given her and I added a couple extra ones in. Um, and we called, we called six, well, six, eight, let's call it eight, it was eight different stores we called, some regional, some, some, some more inner city, some in Queensland, some in New South Wales. My daughter spoke to two of the, um, the people that we got through to, and I spoke to the other six. And we discovered that things weren't quite as bad as, as you know, they were bad, don't get me wrong, but the market was anticipating a wipeout of 80% or, you know, 60% of, of tyre sales. And the feedback we got in researching my daughter's project um, was that, no, it was bad, sure, but it was down about 30% across the board. And they'd started to see an uptick in sales, especially as it related to, um, what are they called, RVs? Yep. Like motorhomes and things like yep. that. Um, especially in regional, in regional Queensland, they had actually seen a boom in sales. So um, I've never before enlisted child labour in my efforts to, to get a competitive advantage, but I will admit that when we got through people were far more prepared to talk to my daughter than they were to me. <laughs> That's great. I think it's a fantastic story. <laughs> I think we don't often talk about 
the lessons that are then placed back on our children and the things that we teach them. And I think mm. implicitly that does that. So it kind of, it shows you how you can teach them to invest like you, to think like you, to think in terms of business. So I think that works brilliantly. Yeah, 100% because I could have just told her the answers. I could have done the research myself and then, you know, yeah. passed on pass on that feedback. But I think, again, it, it's, it's perhaps uncomfortable for her, but it's a great lesson learned. And, you know, she went out of her comfort zone and she grew as a person because of it and she got some great, you know, some great responses as a result as well. But um, That's great. As long as she got the good marks. Yeah, she did. She got an A. <laughs> no, no credit your way. But no, uh, <laughs> look, she, she went off and uh, she wrote her report, and I went off and I wrote my investment committee meeting notes, and I took it to the to the to the table, and we ended up actually adding about fifty percent of our position um, on the back of those conversations. All right. Um, to that to, to, to that particular <laughs> stock, which was quite fortunate in the timing, because about a week later, two weeks later, the company came out and said, "Hey guys, I know you're all scared that we're wiped out from the coronavirus, but you know." It was a tough month, but we're down 30% and we're starting to see a massive recovery in tire sales now. So, you know, we we heard almost the exact same story from the listed company through their announcement as we'd heard from the um, individual stores that we that we personally called. So that was that was pleasing. Yeah, great. Um, that probably leads us next into the next question, which is about portfolio construction and how you think about weightings across companies and I guess the the reason for eight positions, I, we, we talked just before this about how you seem to have this brilliant recall when you talk about companies. Like you know all the really important facts, the really important numbers, um, and you can t- tell the story really well as if you own the company. So I can only imagine that that plays in your thinking, having that informational advantage. It's easier to do that on eight to 20 stocks than it is to do it from 20 to 50 stocks. Yeah. I'm, I'm rarely the smartest man in the room, so. <laughs> except when I'm at the table with my wife and daughters, then I am the smartest man. Don't let her listen to this. <laughs> um, look, I mean, I suppose it all comes down to how you define risk. And I think the greatest risk comes from making mistakes or not knowing what you're doing. Mm. So when people are talking about diversification, they're not talking about reducing risk. Right? Risk is the concern for losing your capital, absolute use of capital. Mm. What diversification does is reduces the volatility of your portfolio. And to me, I'm not especially concerned about volatility. I mean, I don't write it off entirely. Um, you know, I don't run my fund in the same way I would run my personal money because for my personal money, I'd be happy to earn two positions or three positions, but I recognize that that's not digestible for most people out there. And mm-hmm. so running the fund, we've, we've picked, you know, the eight to 10 positions. But if your concern is risk, which is what my concern is, why on earth would I put more money into a company that I'm less confident in mm. just to reduce volatility? Like that sounds absurd to me. You know, if we like a business, if we like an idea, we're going to put 5 to 10% of our capital in that idea because you've gone to all the effort to understand this business. You've gone to all this effort to find the stock to buy it. Why on earth would you stop at 1% or a half percent as many funds do? You know, 2% if you're going crazy. You know, if the company doubles, so it's added 2% to your NAV at the high end, like that, that's not going to have an impact. So what we've done is we've said, look, we invest, we are conviction people. 
Yeah. You know, we are conviction people. We invest in businesses that we like. And when we get it right, which is thankfully more often than not, we'd like it to impact our returns. And so we think the 8 to 12 positions is an appropriate place to be um, to make our investors comfortable that they're not seeing massive swings in volatility, um, but also doesn't expose us to the true risk of owning something that we don't properly understand. And again, I think the true risk to investing is not how much volatility you might see from day to day, but the truest to investing is making a mistake and losing money. And the first rule of investing is don't lose money. <laughs> yep, it is indeed. I think that's great. I think we share a very similar philosophy there. But I think it's also unique in our industry and particularly in funds management because um, you can do it because it's it's your fund. Like for everyone, it's their fund. But for you, it's your fund. You invest um, in the fund, like you own the business that the you know that controls the fund. So you you invest in a way that is reflecting your experience and what you believe works. Whereas some managers get in the position where they have other competing interests, right? And that's a, that can be a bit of an issue. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for sure. I, I mean, I've spoken at length with with other people before about what differentiates our fund um, to, to many of the other funds out there. And I always come back to mandate. Again, I don't think we're doing anything materially different from a, you know, working out what a valuation is. Um, you know, I suspect that most people have similar sausage machines where you input the ingredients on one side and it comes out with a, with a price tag on the other side. I think the main difference is that our investors are backing us. And in doing so, they allow us to have a concentrated portfolio. And if you're investing in your best five ideas, then you're likely to do better than if you were spreading it around 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 different ideas. Mm. So again, you're 100% right. It's, it's the mandate that we've received from our investors that allows us to, to, to do what we're doing. I think too, like if I, if I could zoom out and think over time, the focus on zero management fee, um, I feel like we're going to, maybe I'll, I'll let you answer the kind of the implications for the industry at large if more funds go towards this. But I feel like the way you've set the fund up and how you invest in a more concentrated manner is reflective of that in a way because there are, you and Vass and you're a small team around you that help you um, make decisions and, and research and run your business. I feel like that's only possible when the, the fund itself is lean and it's focused. Um, and and it, do you share that sentiment? And I guess what are the kind of implications if more funds go to this type of, I guess, model? Our view has always been that we want to find management of companies that have aligned their interests with shareholders. And we think it's reasonable that our investors would be looking for the same thing. So when we sat down and we thought about how can we most align our interests with our investors, the thing that came to mind was, well, if our investors don't make money, we don't make money. I think that makes some sense. What that means, though, is a number of things. It means, number one, you need to have, again, that mandate. You need to have the capacity to do what you believe to be right. In our, in our case, that is run a concentrated portfolio based on, on the principles of value investing. Um, but it also means that you've got capacity constraints. And in a space, the financial world, that's dominated by funds trying to get bigger because in ordinary circumstances, the bigger you are, the more fees you can make. Um, our fee structure just doesn't work because mm. at the point that we grow too big for our bridges, 
well, we're not going to generate those performance numbers that we want to that, that generate. And if we're, not, if we're not performing, if we're not generating those, those positive returns, then we're not getting a fee. So I think what you would find, and I'm not aware of, of a big wave of zero fixed management <laughs> fee fund managers coming out, but I think if, if you were to find, if you were to see that, I think what you'd find is, is probably one of two approaches from fund managers. Certainly you've got to keep it lean because mm. you never know when your next paycheck is coming. I think number one, you would find that funds would be far more active and far more aware of their constraints, which is great because mm. then, you know, th- then, then you've aligned your interests with, 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 your, with your unit holders and, you know, everyone's going to do well. I suppose the risk is that you could become overly conservative and if your fees are based on an absolute return, well, you could stick all your money into cash or, or, or turn deposits or some version of a hybrid or a bond and generate a very low return, but you would be able to scale it up much mm. larger and you'd get, you know, you'd get performance fees on an ongoing basis. I think the trouble with that second proposal is that we don't live in a vacuum. And if someone were to give an equities fund manager money to invest in equities and then discovered they were instead sticking it into bonds or cash, I think that fund manager would probably go out of business pretty quickly. So I think it would be a positive um, for investors if you saw more zero fixed management fee funds cropping up. But again, it's a risk. It's a big risk from a fund management perspective, from a fund manager perspective, to make this offering. Because number one, you've got to back yourself, and number two, you've got to be able to support yourself. Mm. And again, we were fortunate that when we launched the fund, um, we had a number of people who said they would support us with, with an investment in us. Um, we were fortunate that we'd saved up some money through some, some good investments over the previous couple of years. And we backed ourselves from a, an investment perspective because we had, you know, in my case, eight or 10 years of positive track record. And I, I thought we could, we could move that across to a fund structure as well. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of stars aligned for us. Mm. Um, and both Vass and I are the sorts of people that are prepared to take those sorts of risks, you know, to back yourself um, and to, you know, chase our goals, chase our dreams, as cliche as that may sound. Um, I don't know. I don't know if there are many other fund managers out there that would be prepared to take that risk. And at least so far from what I've seen, not a lot have. Um, so mm. I don't know. I, I, that, that, that's, I suppose, my... I guess we'll wait and see with yeah, that. Yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see. Yeah. Look, the, the, the risk is a race to the bottom. Mm. Right? You've seen it in fixed management fees. You've seen in fixed management fees that fundies used to be able to get away with 2 plus 20. And now, you know, they've dropped their performance fees in a lot of cases and they're being squeezed down to 0.2, you know, to, you know, to 20 bips instead of, you know, 2%. So I suppose if, if it became common practice, and I can't imagine it being the case, that, that funds started moving to performance fee only, that there'd be a race to the bottom there as well. But again, I think, I think that's unlikely. Mm. It's a bit like cutting off your nose to spite your face. It's, it's not going to be helpful. Yeah, and, and of course, I guess it's, we, sh- it sh- we should mention that it's not the only consideration that people should be thinking about when they're Look, weighing up a fund. If someone is deciding where to invest based on fees, they probably shouldn't be investing, mm. right? Yeah. So, you know, we want people to back our philosophy, yeah? Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's easier to compare something that you can see in front of you than something theoretical. So our, you know, our, our philosophy and our process is somewhat theoretical for people 
who are not us for people who we're, you know, we're looking to bring into the fund. Whereas fees and returns, you can see them spelled out, you know, on the Morningstar website, on the, on the Mercer website, you can see and compare like for like. At the end of the day, our view is back philosophy, back results mm. in that order. Um, the fees impact the results. So that's, that's about as, as, as far as it really should go. Again, our fees are different. So it's a bit of a, a marketing, marketing angle. But at the end of the day, if, if you're investing for the fee structure only, you shouldn't be investing with us. You should be backing us for number one, our philosophy and our process. And number two, if you think we can continue doing the sorts of results that we have been doing. Mm. I, I think a lot of the people that listen to this know why I structured the series the way I have insofar as the questioning, but for maybe for some of the listeners that don't, the reason why I don't ask people, you know, what's your take on this or how was your quarter or whatever is because in my mind, as someone who invests longer term, the really important questions are the questions that how you to, that form that have formed how you think, because if you invest with someone, you invest alongside someone, what you're getting is their process and their philosophy. You're not getting what happened in the past. And that's why I spend so much time on that, and I want to learn more about you. And that that's why I say philosophy and process first, and fee, and and return second, because yeah. you know we might have a great month, we might have a terrible month. You know, at the moment we're flying high, but God knows in six months' time we might not be. So mm. you know. We're, we're very conscious that when we bring in investors that they're not just coming in because we've done well. We're very conscious that they understand our philosophy and process and they buy into it. We don't, we don't want fast money. We want people to come and back us. And so far we've been fortunate that uh, that's been the case and mm. it's, it's, it's been shown through, through the corona crash. Thankfully we didn't have any redemptions during the corona crash. And it's not because of our results because we were down the same as everybody else, but it's because people understand what we're doing. And if you understand what we're doing um, and you support it, then you, you, know, you back the fund. For sure. It's, it's more sticky, isn't it? I didn't know you were going to bring this in. For people that are on the podcast, you don't know, but there's actually a book in front of me from the camera. You can see this. Um, there's a book here that you created a few years ago with all your favorite quotes in it. <laughs> and um, you've put a couple of your own in here. Um, one um, from you, which is, you can get rich slowly or you can get poor quickly. Timeframes and outcomes really cross over. I was going to just get you to explain that, but I think it might be obvious, but maybe there's something in there. Might be obvious. Mm. Look, the best quotes are the ones that are in obvious in hindsight, right? Mm -hmm. Look, I can't count how many times I've spoken to, especially young people, and they've said, Michael, you know, what's a good idea for me to invest in? And I said, look, I can't provide you specific advice because <laughs> I don't want to go to jail or lose my license. Um, but something like ABC, let's say. And they'd inevitably go off and buy ABC despite it not being financial advice. Um, and they'd come back 12 months later and say, oh, it was boring. I said, what do you mean it was boring? It was up 25% in 12 months. No, no, no. Uh, well, you know, I need 100%, you know, 100% in six months. So I think people underestimate, I'm certain of it, People underestimate the value of compound returns. Yeah. Perhaps by itself, 20-25% per annum might not look like a lot. But over a couple of years, all of a sudden, you've doubled and tripled your money. I think on the flip side, people don't tend to lose money slowly. So I think, I think people tend to make dumb mistakes and get wiped out. So I think the, the idea of, of that quote, getting rich slowly or, or getting poor quick, is that getting rich 
is a slow process. Mm. Getting poor is easy as pie. Yeah. I think it's like if you, if you get rich quick, just take away the quick and just focus on get rich. Yeah. And then your time, sh- your time uh, frame will shift. 100%. Yeah. I mean, th- th- there, is, there is one philosophical point. I, I, I know it's non-consensus for me to say this. Um, but I do appreciate that for some people, time frames are different and, and, and expectations of returns are different. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. It's just something that I've thought about for a while and I, I haven't quite come to grips with it, but it's, it's an interesting point. But I call it an, in, an internal inflation rate. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is if you're a young person and you're looking to invest, traditional advice would be to invest pretty much in the same way that your dad or your granddad would. Yeah. You can be pretty confident that 60 to 80% of people who you go to financial advice, whether you're 20 or whether you're 60, are going to suggest that you go and buy an index fund because it's easy. It's easy. I think it's a mistake. And this is totally counter consensus, but this is my view. My view is that as a young person, your internal rate of inflation is significantly higher than your father or your grandfather. Why? Because for a 12-year-old, $100 is the entire world, yeah? Mm. For an adult, $100 is the first half of your day at work. So for a child of 14 or 16 or 20, to ensure that their investments are keeping up with their internal rate of inflation, which is much, much quicker than their parents or grandparents, they probably should be investing in stocks that have a greater prospect of higher returns although they also have the higher prospect of risk of loss. And the point being that it's worth taking that risk because even if they get it wrong, you know, their earnings capacity is ever-increasing. So the $100 that to them was their whole world at 14, at 16, it's suddenly just a weekend at work. Mm. At 18, again, it's suddenly just, you know, a day at work. So, so, so my view is, you know, while I encourage people not to try and get rich quick the definition of quick i think for different people at different stages of their lives is it's got to be treated differently and i I think it's i think it's a shame that the industry doesn't really deal with a 20 year old and a 60 year old sufficiently differently Mm. i think i find that with entrepreneurship in general for example if you had a negative experience with one of your um, smaller entrepreneurial endeavors when you were younger um, that would be okay because you had so much time to recoup but you should have taken that risk regardless of the outcome. The lessons learned are worth far more than any money you've lost in your younger years. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And without that experience, you wouldn't have been moulded into the investor that you are today. Mm. Okay, two more questions because I know this has gone on for a while and you've got other things to do in the day other than I just talking to me. My car is locked in for another two hours. So take your time. <laughs> So the, the, this one's an easy one, which is um, how can people learn more about you and the Collins Street Value Fund? The best way would be to reach out to us um, via email. Mm-hmm. You, can get, you can get us through office at csvf.com.au. Mm-hmm. Um, equally, you can check out our website, again, csvf.com.au, yep. and there's contact details there. Yeah, I'll put some links in the show notes for sure. Okay. Um, last question, which is one of my favorite if you could go back, tell yourself one thing, maybe there's a more than one, but one really important thing about money, life or investing, what would it be? 
So we, I think we talked about it earlier. I'm not sure if it was on camera or off camera, but I think a couple of the most important things, and some of them I did, some of them not, would be number one, find a mentor. Find a mentor that you can lean on and you can learn from. That's, that's fundamentally important. Um, you don't need to reteach yourself everything from scratch. You can find someone that can be your guide. Mm-hmm. Number two is find a friend. I don't mind. I, I don't mean a mate. I mean a friend who, an industry friend, somebody who you can test your theories against, somebody who you can you can push against, someone that you can be devil's advocate against, someone that will help you grow. Um, both of those roles are distinctly different and incredibly important. Yep. I think the other thing is have patience. Um, there's always going to be another idea. You know, I, I recall as a youngster seeing an idea and, and getting excited about it and thinking, this is the greatest idea that's ever happened and ever will happen. It's <laughs> never the case. It's never the case. You know, there'll always be another opportunity. Don't jump at something until you're, you've got conviction. And on that, I suppose, finally, would be when you have conviction in something, in something in life. It doesn't need to be specifically in investing. You know, whether it's, you know, a person in a relationship, whether it's, you know, a sports club that you want to commit to, or whether it's an investment that you've discovered. Once you've got conviction, don't be fearful. Act. Mm. Act with conviction. Um, I think those are probably the four main, probably the four main things that I would tell myself and my children. Um, and get a watch. A watch? A watch, yeah. I think time is the only thing that you can't make more of, um, and it's your greatest asset. Um, it's, 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 it provides you the greatest power for self-growth, um, and yet you find people flittering it away. And certainly for children and young, young adults, they're often even totally unaware of, of that time as it's flittering past. So get a watch. There's some great ones in there. <laughs> Michael, as always, mate, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Alan.